Welcome to Podrick the Podcast, the incremental podcast that adds even more value. This is our latest series, We're All Mad Here. The idea behind this series is to chat with some of the most influential people from the digital marketing industry. People from ad platforms, brand marketers, performance marketers, marketing analysts, and just influential figures. The conversations are casual and not rehearsed. We're talking about how the space evolved, demystifying some concepts and misconceptions that our audiences might have. In this interview, we're grateful to have Adam Jaffe from Megaworld joining us as our guest. Hope you'll enjoy listening to this podcast. Wait, I got to get my... Um... I'm going to get my mega swag over a bit. But it's not, we're not doing with video, you know. Oh, it's just voice? All oh, right, it's a podcast. Okay, fine. Okay, so take my hands off. So, should we start with, like, take two? I mean... So maybe... I think, maybe give, I think take two infers that... Um, that something that the, the director wasn't excited or wasn't didn't love the performance of the actor. I think in this case, it's uh, I fucked up and, and deleted this particular podcast. So where I requested, and of course, Adam Jaffe is so nice and such a good friend that he would do another 45 minutes of the same questions. Um, maybe something like that. Yeah, so maybe starting this podcast by uh, telling everybody, uh, Adam and I recorded this a couple of days ago, and then a day later, my OCD decided that, hmm, what is this folder? Let me just delete it and let me empty my trash. And then it hit me and then trying to retrieve the file, realizing, nope. Yep, and then realizing that you had to grovel and be like, after, after all these weeks of not finally missing dates and not being able to connect and... You have more time for me? Of course I have more time for you. I have, I have infinite time for you more. I will always make time for you. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Like so yeah, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's do it again. Adam, um, how are you, first of all? I'm good. You know, business is good. We, we had COVID a couple weeks ago, so we're, we're out, of that, out of that experience. That was fun. And um, yeah, I'm, uh, the year started off well. We're, uh, we're just getting ready to launch um, a couple new games and we're doing planning now. We've got 10 games that we'll look to launch by the, by the end of Big June. Crap. And this is good. So hopefully the team is, team is growing. We're 18 plus now. So I think we're 18 full, 17 full-time plus two part-time employees at the moment and looking to hire more guys. So it's, you know, I keep saying missile, you know, either we're on a rocket ship or a missile. I'm, I'm pretty sure at this point we're, we're, we're on a rocket ship. Pretty sure it's not going to explode. Um, but you never know. So I'm keep, I'm just keeping, keeping my head to the ground, trying to grind it out. Cool. Let's take like t- 10 steps back. Um, could you maybe introduce yourself to our listeners and also a little bit of history and how you got to where you are? Sure. So hi listeners. My name is Adam Jaffe. I am the founder and CEO of a company called Mega Worldwide. Um, we're a gaming agency based in Barcelona. Um, as I mentioned, growing, making lots of games. Um, I've been working in the gaming space for the last 15 years or so. Um, I got my start in the real money casino space in Israel. Um, and I was doing that, basically doing affiliate marketing back in 2008, 2009. Then did a little bit of advertiser sales. Actually, 2008, that's where I met more. He was working on the media side. I was basically uh, the VIP affiliate manager, whatever that means, um, for a company called Neo Games. 
Um, then when Maor went to work for Matomi, um, I was like, I, I need to get out of this place. And after the six, I don't know if you remember, but we had that six month waiting period that we, that moved on. Then you hired me to work on your advertiser sales team, um, where I was basically helping to sell the affiliate program of Matomi that never really took off. Amazing. We, we, yeah, we, we both came from affiliate marketing when affiliate marketing used to be cool, used to be like the thing. So cool. And then I think cool. we all realized that it's so much of it was attribution gaming. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And I think we also realized that we were too, we were too white, not, not our skin color, but like we weren't black hat, you know, we weren't, we weren't the guys going out like who were like really doing like we could have done all of that. Like I could have been stealing the, the leads of my teammates and like, but in fact, I have a funny story that actually, I was actually accused of doing that when I was working in Playtica. Somebody was like, I heard this story and I was like, you can do that? So I'm like, I could have been making so much more money if I had been brought, people were paying me bribes on the table, but I'm just like, I'm too, you know, I'm too. too ethical, cool. ethical, ethical. Yeah, that's the word. I'm, I'm, I'm ethical. Might've been my philosophy major in, in, in university, but Anyway, so um, yeah, I mentioned place polo. Second, my dog is trying to get out. So in 2000. And no, 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 no. Wait, uh, sit down. You had to treat your dog. Yeah, sorry. Yes. So Matomi. Uh, yes. So in in 2011, uh, that's where I got kind of caught my lucky break. Actually, through Moore, as as a matter of fact. Um, so Moore fired me. Um, mainly because the company wasn't supporting the businesses that I was working in. So it told me it was always trying to find its way with me and finally it just didn't seem like it was the right fit. So they, they let me go. And then, and I was looking at all kinds of weird jobs, other affiliates, you know, kind of iron source style stuff. And then you called me up and you said, don't, uh, don't take this job. Don't take any job until you speak to this guy. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, cool. More thinks he's a good guy. I was ended up being Robert Antico from Placica, the CEO. Um, I joined them as their tenth employee, and I built the whole marketing department and ran by myself for the first year of the company. Put Slotomania on the map, then moved over to the mobile side, ran that for a year and a half, plus launched an affiliate program, a website called Slotomania.com, a publishing network, so lots of stuff. And in that, during that time, I also met the guys from Jelly Button and also Moon Active, which I both which I joined both of those companies as an advisor for their advisory boards. I still am with Moon Active. As we all know, it's a little bit gone through to the moon and beyond, I think, at this point. So um, from there, ended up taking a job with, uh, with Jam City. After almost five years in casino, I realized that I wanted something different. So I joined as the VP of growth of, of Jam City, uh, helping basically the CEOs better structure the organization and found out that I really did enjoy that kind of like the connected tissue between all of those different departments. Um, did that for almost a year, ended up getting offered another job in, in, in Europe to become the VP of marketing at Social Point. Thought, good opportunity to get out of Israel, be in Europe. So took that job. I was there for a little over a year and a half, you know, scaling the team. Um, and essentially from that point on, you know, I, and, and if you look at my career, the first kind of 10 years has been really marketing focused. And then I sort of transitioned beyond that in the last five years um, after Social Point, and there was another kind of education technology company. I ended up taking over my own company, um, which is a football manager. And I, and I really started enjoying kind of running the product side of things, running a studio. Um, and because that company never really took off, I had to do kind of consulting work on the side. So I ended up going back to Jam City 
which is where I got my first real taste of, of live, live game operation and live game management because they ended up sending me down to Argentina to help run a studio that they had down there. And they basically had these five legacy titles that they wanted to bring back into marketing. And there wasn't any work done on them for a couple of years in terms of like first time user experience, but um, they were like, how do we do that? I don't know. Okay, let's invent this thing that we're going to do now. So that's um, that's kind of how I've, I've come to do what I do now. So I today I, I run a studio which builds games, helps support companies in basically live game operations, new game management, marketing functions, the kind of the whole gamut of, of the mobile industry. Um, yeah, you know, it takes me no less thinking, time than ten minutes to go through my background. I, I was thinking, I was thinking, like you know, because indeed we recorded this, and like we both spoke about the the point of the network, you know, to help us to like get to where we are, and and I don't think either of us ever like intentionally worked on their network. Like you know, we don't really come from this like Ivy League schools where you apparently build this like network. I think the like. The way we built our network was okay we are fairly direct people you and i um we tell people straight good or bad but we're not dicks no nobody yeah. can ever, they can they, they call us assholes to our face yeah, some people behind, for sure, back. Sure. but you know i don't think anybody ever said that we weren't straight you know and i think and, and i think to, to your point what it takes to get to where i am today is is the network i i I cannot tell you that I, I mean, I didn't learn any of what I'm learning today in university or in school. You know, everything that I have is essentially like, I learned how to learn. I think maybe it's the only thing I can say that I learned in college. And, and I've applied that well here, but it's also just, just being available. You know, I, I remember having, you know, people would come to me and they'd say, ah, can you help me get a job? Or, you know, you know friends of mine. And and then I'd help them get a job. And then I'd be like, hey, you should be talking to these people. And they'd be like, oh my God, I don't have the time. Like, I don't want to talk to, to, to agencies. I don't want to talk. And I'm like, you need, that's part of your job. Your, part of your job is to network yourself because this job you have now, it's not forever. And you need to make sure that you're, you're not the dick. You're not the guy that's like obscuring or, or moving people away from you. You want to incorporate as much people as possible into, your, into sort of in, into your, your orbit. So that when you do need something or you have that question, you're like, oh, I already know six people that I can ask about this. And that's just going to make you a better person. Yeah, and you know, like, again, knowing you pretty well, and I think that you and I share this confidence, not arrogance. And like, maybe, you know, to, to put a disclaimer here. So Adam is an, is an advisor for incremental and Eric Suford is an advisor as well. And like, you know, you and Eric were like the first people who came to mind for me. And I remember like, you know, introducing you with my co-founder, though, you know, I think you knew of one another and maybe even you met, but I remember like, you know, giving a disclaimer to Moti before introducing you, telling him like, look, Adam is very direct, very confident, but it's not arrogance. And usually when I introduce you to people, that's what I, I tell them, um, like, be prepared. He will tell you um, to your face, what he thinks, which I think is a good thing. The other thing I think we both share is also we ask questions. You know, sometimes people apologize for dumb questions. There is no dumb questions. There's just questions. How do you, how do you not like realize that? Well, and I think it even goes beyond that more, you know, you and I don't have, we're not starstruck, you know? I don't think of myself as like some guru or whatever, but I can tell you that 
I have no problem. I mean, it happened. I remember I was in, in Tel Aviv or Pincus was at a, at a rooftop thing, giving a, giving a talk. And I just walked right up to him like, Hey man, my name's Adam Jaffe. I'd love to take you for coffee. Like just pick your brain. And I saw the, 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 the people that were in that, in that rooftop kind of meetup, they were like, he was like reverent. They couldn't, they didn't want to talk to him. They didn't want to like, and I'm like, no dude, this is a guy I want to meet. And it had no like, you know, yeah, yeah, I think I mean, I, it wasn't that I, I was like needing to, to, to skirt my way around. And I feel like you take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. You don't want to be kind of like an annoying person, but I think, <laughs> well, you're not running in for a selfie or a signature. I think that would be like, yes, that's, that's true. But I, but to, my, my point is, is that, you know, if somebody's doing something that you appreciate or that you respect, you know, tell them that and say, Hey man, like, I just want to know that yeah. what you're doing. I want you to know that what you're doing is like, I respect that. I think that it's, it's amazing. You're doing a great job. Like, can you give me some pointers on how you do what you do? And yeah. I can tell you one thing that I've learned about my career, about me personally too. And it's pretty common knowledge, I would say, but it's very difficult to put into practice is that people love talking about themselves. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I, I think I taught you that in like sales seminars in Matomi. <laughs> exactly. And so just asking them, Hey, how did you get to where you are? 99.999% of people will, will take the time. You know, there's the you know, famous, you know, that that's what, that's, yeah. that's the question that got you the job at Matomi when we were working together. Cause the VP had to interview you. And I remember him like coming up to the meeting fairly shocked positively shocked saying this guy said lifted his feet and asked me how did you get your job <laughs> and i think you really appreciated that yeah i mean you you first of all yeah that was probably more arrogance than, than confidence lifting the feet for sure yeah, probably but i would say that um for me there was uh you know you have that famous steve jobs you know, anecdote in which he called up uh, the guy from, I can't remember, Dell and being like, or Hewlett, I can't remember which one it was. Just being like, I, he's like, I could, I, I looked him up in the phone book, picked up the phone and was like, tell me how you do what you do. And I think it's, it's such a kind of like storied, you know, anecdote and people look at that. But the reality is, is that that is literally how all companies start, in my opinion. And good people get to where they are because they have a good network that they, or they create their own network. And I think that's 80 to 90%. You know, they talk about luck is the, the crossroad of preparation and what is it? Preparation and uh, execution or preparation and something else, right? Whatever. Point is, is that the same with the network, you know? And I think there's a, this cliche also of entrepreneurs, you know, you got to be young. You got to be young and hungry. I mean, you and I are not young. I'm 40, I'm 40 plus. I'm like... Uh... Yeah. We're, well, we're doing our startup thing. Our I'm, I'm thing. really glad that I did not do startups when I was then like, I'm just thinking today, you know, doing some of the things I'm doing. It's like, how the hell would I have known to do this in my twenties? Nah, forget about it, man. We would have crashed and burned so many times. I mean, you know, I think that's this idea that like, yeah, they launched this thing and it was, I mean, it was the only reason that Zuckerberg is where he is, is because Facebook was successful. Right. I mean, it's this weird thing that I, I, I always can't really wrap my head around it. You know, people talk about Facebook is just amazing. I'm like, Facebook worked because a lot of people came to it, right? You're only as good as the product, as the number of people who are using your product. And if there are a lot of people, then you make money. And so you train yourself how to do that. 
you know, and I think you and I took a little bit different in the sense that we had to just get good at business and then realize like how to make products that could fit a market. But, you know, we never had that crazy crash course, but those people were not good managers. I don't think any 20 year old is going to be a good manager. Um, let's go for some of the questions that we came up with. Um, quite generic, but I am getting different answers. Is marketing an art or a science? Good question. So I think, I think it's a combination of both. And I think it depends on the time period, but also the type of products. You know, if we're talking about even within now the mobile industry with the IDFA deprecation, you, get, you can really cleave that into it's an art on iOS and it is a science on Android. Um, when I think of the difference between art and science, what, I, what I'm typically referring to is the ability to, you know, with, with art, it's about interpretation, right? The beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. And so, you know, because you don't have deterministic tracking anymore because the IDFA is not present in most of the insults, you have to sort of take a little leap of faith and say, I, how am I interpreting this information? Well, I, I'm using incrementality, I'm using these tools, I'm using my armas, whatever your, your internal system is. But at, at the end of the day, it's also kind of like, I believe this to be true right? because it's not deterministic anymore. Whereas of course in iOS, excuse me, in Android, it's one, still 100% deterministic, you know exactly what's happening. It's very much a science, lookalikes, device graph, the whole nine yards, it's still 100% in play. So, you know, it, it's digging into data and, and, and parsing out the truth that is very much reality. It's not like, fiction or somebody could be like, well, I think it's something else. You're like, no, 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 it's hundred percent Facebook look alike. I can see it in the numbers. Yeah, uh, kind of related to the next question. So death of the identifier, curse or blessing? So I think it's, I think it depends on the type of product you have. I think everybody in general, it's a curse in general because it makes everything much more complicated. It opens the door for a lot of ambiguity Prices increase. I think, you know, a lot of products out there who, you know, like your, your weather apps, I mean, the, the, the device graph offered the ability to monetize your products much more effectively because you knew who was in those products, right? You know, you want that high CPM user. Well, you're not necessarily finding them in Candy Crush, but you're definitely finding him on BBC's app or in that weather app that has a million DAU. But, you know, without the device graph, you're going to be getting... I don't know, $2 CPMs, but with the device graph, you can get guys that are at $500 CPMs. So I think in terms of, in terms of just business, it, it's a curse, but in terms of what that device graph was becoming and the way companies were, were, were basically creating closed gardens in which they essentially controlled the market because they were forcing people to send that information, you know, it's, it's a blessing because companies like Facebook, and Google and Liftoff and, and essentially any company that was, you know, hoarding this information were creating just unfair business practices. So anybody coming into the market were essentially, you know, dead on arrival. You could not, you cannot compete with Facebook's targeting because they have all the data. And that to me feels unfair. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. If you're an, if you're a, an honest businessman, you know, you want to, you know, you want to be clean, you want to be good, you know, in that way. You, you, you don't typically care, but you know, it does hurt your bottom line. So start taking it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, Adam, how would you defer um, or how would you differentiate attribution from measurement? Yeah, this, this question was also, this one stumped me last time a little bit too. I think when I think about the idea of, of attribution to, a, you know, I typically think about 
you know, action and reaction. And so I think about like, I know how to define something. Like I attribute this action with that action. And, and so in this case, what you're trying to identify with attribution is, is the causal effect. Like what was the cause of this particular thing, right? So you're looking historically, you're looking at the numbers, you're looking at partners, right? Whereas measurement is then you're trying to define the value, the literal value increment of that action. So I think they're both part of the same puzzle, right? So if you have incrementality testing, you, know, you think about the um, the measurement as the you know the downstream, like what took place. So it's a physical number, a gap analysis, or a, using an ARMA to see that additional growth metric. That that additional part is is the measured part. Whereas the attribution, you know, I think in, you can take it in two ways. One is you know I attribute that growth to this event. So you're just using it specifically as it's sort of the definition of the word. Um, and in other cases, you know, you talk about attribution as sort of a deterministic view through, right? Like I know what did this action, therefore I can clearly see that. And I think that now becomes a little bit gray because depending on whether you're talking about an MMP with, you know, device graph and, and Google ID or, or IDFA, your attribution and measurement are, are very different outcomes than if you're talking about say incrementality testing like what you have, right? Or without the device graph and, and the IDFA. You know, you know how sometimes you think of a word too much and then you, you get stuck on it and then you, you, you actually start losing the meaning of the word. So I'm kind of there now. So I've been asking this question in any, every interview and I'm trying to, to figure out. So that's S like this. You know, I think we both respect the attribution companies. Let's, let's take just one of them that um, um, you know, we know and we like, Kochava. Is Kochava an attribution company or a measurement company? <laughs> um, so I think I don't, I don't see them as mutual exclusive terms. I think about them. I just think that their meaning can be, can be very different depending on whether you're talking about something being, you know, known or unknown, meaning deterministic or probabilistic. So if it's, if it's taking the, the deterministic route, you know, I think they're, they're 100% an attribution company, um, that does a type of measurement. I mean, <clears throat> I think it is confusing. You you see you see my point, right? Because the next question, of course, is what is incremental? I'm I'm now asking myself this, having asked the same question in a couple of interviews. Maybe it's English. May, again, English for no, me is a, is the second language for you. It's a mother tongue, and no, you're pretty good at it. I I would say that first of all, thank you. But I would say that those two words can live can live exclusively with each other or apart or in some phase, right? There isn't, it's not that it can be, it's for attribution or measurement. You know, I don't see them as these mutual exclusive terms, right? In fact, I see attribution as a function of measurement, right? And I think when I think about incrementality, I think about a very kind of unique case in, in the measurement capacity, which is that you don't necessarily, you know what, what so you know what you're doing, but you don't know the effect that that is having on your business. And so you add the incrementality model for that algorithm or whatever to allow you to measure the impact of the things that you're seeing. So I'm saying, I see this growth in downloads or I see this growth in revenue. I know that that exists. I can see it empirically, right? Um, and I know also that I have these six campaigns running. And I think that incrementality is, is sort of designed to impartially tell you without having attribution, without having a fixed line on a, you know, this was this download doing this thing, 
what's taking place. Yeah. And, I, and I think it, it's a, I'm gonna use the word now, it, it's a semantic argument a little bit, right? Depending on what you think this word is meaning. It, it, depends, it depends on who I'm speaking with. You know, you, you and I get it. And obviously our customers get it. And most marketers and data science get it. When I'm speaking with investors, just to give you some perspective, who, you know, they, they know of the mobile tracking companies or attribution companies, and then they are, are trying to get, what are we doing different? Wait, are we saying that AppSlayer or Jazz or Java is wrong? And then I keep explaining, no, like our solution doesn't challenge their solution because their solution most of the time is fact. This click led to this install. Question is, would you have gotten this install if it wasn't for that click? That's a different, uh, and that's, it's not semantics, but, yeah, anyway, maybe I need to uh, hit the dictionary later. Um, uh, let's jump I, to the next. I, 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 can tell you, I can tell you that, you know, a little side story for, for all you people out there listening. Um, Moore is really smart. Uh, I've said it many times, probably too smart for his own good. And I think maybe the problem that you have is that you understand your system so well. And I think for me personally, it's not that investors are uninformed. Formed. I think that they are they are sometimes very smart, but they do not have the it's like talking to a caveman and trying to explain a telephone, right? Like they don't have a history. So for you and I, we're like, of course, in 2008 it was like this, and then we had this thing, and, nine, <laughs> and then in 2016 we had the UDID deprecation. And, and, and yeah, they're yeah, like, that's very me. I have a phone. Can that's I know what's mean. on? Like, yeah. you know, is the government tracking? Like they just don't understand it. And so I think one, like, it, I mean, it happened, right? One of your investors was came to me, and I'm like, let me just. It's like the dumbest to the dumbest level possible, which is that you turn the lights out in the room, mm. right? You still want to know what's in the room. How, how do you know that? Well, you, you, you can look out the door and you can see in the other room that there's a light on. You know what's in that room. You know what's coming in, but you don't know necessarily what's coming. And you know what's coming out the other side, but there's something happening in this box, right? Incrementality is designed to offer a solution to support that type of analysis. Now, you can do it with attribution or without meaning determinism or probabilistic, but it doesn't matter because you're not using actual device level information. You're using what you see on one end and what you're seeing on the other. Yeah, that's, that's a good That's a good one. Uh, and yeah, you described me pretty well, other than again, I, I think you're smarter, but anyway, uh, let's talk pandemic and, and not your recent uh, experience with Corona, but let's talk pandemic and gaming. So, you know, it's like, it's said that the pandemic brought a lot of like non-gamers to gaming. Um, do you see that and who who are there who are these uh, people so i wouldn't say that the pandemic brought them i think if you think about sort of moments in the last 20 years in which populations have become less mobile and i don't mean less mobile in terms of phones i mean literally like your movement has been restricted those are moments in which mobile gaming and gaming in general have, have taken off, right? And we see it across the board, right? And I think it started really in 2008. That was actually the birth of this kind of wave that we have now of, of new gamers, right? Because with the whole financial crisis, people essentially weren't traveling and they weren't spending money on entertainment outside of, of their homes because there, there, there was nothing. I mean, it was everyone was decimated, people losing their job. And so they went into this kind of hibernation mode, but of course you're not going to do nothing. And so you're sitting at home, you have your phone, the type of purchase, the way it works, it doesn't feel like you're spending a lot of money. And so 
if you if you can't like that was the first major I would say first wave of like quote unquote new gamers, right? And and that introduced a lot of people the fact that you could just get a, a game on your phone like a Candy Crush. You know, you had a huge uptick in in all the Facebook games. You know, and then of course the App Store became even more prevalent, and then Google came along, and so it it was sort of building on this wave. Um, all the way through till like 2011, 2012, then everything kind of, then the, the real money hit, right? And then all of a sudden you had tons of marketing and the growth whole kind of growth of the infrastructure. And when I look today at, um, at what Corona did, I think, and, and, the, and the pandemic in general was, was basically the same. I wouldn't say that it exposed more people, but what it did was again, the same situation happened, which is that people had disposable, they had income, that they weren't going out and spending anywhere else. And so, you know, when you look at the market, you just saw tons and tons of impressions because people were just sitting at home. So, you know, it had a, a very, very, it's always hard for me to say positive impact because it's like, it's just a horrible situation, right? But, you know, if you think about just purely on numbers, business, you know, games that hadn't been profitable ever were not profitable in marketing. You just had more impressions, which meant cheaper CPMs. You had games which, you know, were declining, which now all these people were, re, re, you know, they're bored on their phones, so they're finding that the game again, and they're playing it again. So, you know, I think it's mainly that people just got bored. So I don't think, in my opinion, that it created a new segment of users. I just think people got busy, and when they're not busy, that's what they're doing, you know? Okay, we made a list of, like, you know, our industry really, really likes coming up with new buzzwords and key terms and whatever. And I made a list of those. And I wanted to hear if you think something is an actual trend people should be looking into or if it's industry BS. Um, Google ID deprecation or Android ID deprecation. So I personally think it's BS because of the way Google works. That being said, creating yourself contextual bidding algorithm that would work with the Google ID as a, as, a, as a way to kind of offset your potential risk, definitely something if you're a big spender of Google that I would, I would just have in the back of your mind. Okay. Cross-platform advertising. Definitely trendy. I think it's, uh, I think, you know, your audience is now second, third, fifth screen. So figuring out ways to stitch that together and to, and to identify where your audience is, especially given the fact that with IDFA, it's become more difficult in this one platform. It doesn't open the door because it's already difficult in iOS, TV, YouTube, these other channels are like, they're equally difficult. So you might as well test them out, right? And if you have a solution for the IDFA deprecation, then it'll work on other platforms. So I have another I have another one for you that I didn't ask the last time. Influencer marketing. 100% good for it. I think it's, I, think, I, I don't use the word trendy. I think it's just, it's, you know, I think if I can, if I can digress for a second here, I think, when I think about influencer marketing, I, I think that the way in which it's been set up is completely wrong. And I think most businesses uses influencers like a billboard, you know, like here's George Clooney with his hand holding a nice bottle of champagne or whatever. So people are like, oh, George Clooney. So they see, the, they see Clooney, but he's not influencing their decision. He's just the candy, the eye candy to get you to look at the ad, right? And, and that is kind of how influencer marketing has worked today. I think that if well done campaigns in which users are engaged with their influencer so that he's literally influencing them to play the game, that can still be done. Uh, if you want to know how to do it more efficiently, you should reach out to me because I have a whole strategy on that. Cool. And non fungible tokens, NFT. 
Bullshit. Okay. And the metaverse. <clears throat> so, again, I wouldn't. I would say it's trendy. Obviously, NFT, you know, metaverse, play to earn, all this stuff is like it's becoming trendy. But you know, when things which are already in existence for 20 years become trendy, it's it's usually bullshit. So you know, I think overly, overly hyped. Yeah, it's totally overhyped. Companies coming out talking about blockchain gaming, and this is going to be changing the world. No, I don't think so, because you're never going to add blockchain to Candy Crush. Just not ca hyper casual games aren't going to, and that's where a lot of <laughs> a lot of people play. You know, in your hugely hardcore game, fine, you have a character that you earn, blah blah blah. But then, of course, who's going to be interested in buying that? Well, the other 500 people who you're playing with on a daily basis. It's good for you but i don't think it's a game changer for the industry yeah and metaverse again i think you mentioned it last time we spoke it's like second life anyone yep exactly i do think that there's a that the metaverse in the current pandemic environment um felt like we you know i felt like we were maybe three years too early for the pandemic you know if companies like rec room and of course you know all these new metaverse things that had, had, had already been in proper production you know i would have loved to have i have like a like a quest you know put on my headset enter into my meeting room be looking around interacting with my guys you know and i feel like that's just not something that is functionally it's not feasible today so i do see that there's i mean there's a good value proposition in the metaverse i completely understand it my problem is is that there are now like 15 metaverses you know everyone and their grandmother seems to be wanting here yeah Sony wants to make one and Samsung's doing their own thing and you've got Google probably and then I don't know Netflix wants it just it doesn't make any sense so I'm assuming that eventually you'll consolidate into one metaverse like the Oasis I mean I love Freddy Player One I think it's oh, one of the favorite movies I love the concept yeah um and that will be something quite interesting but until that time what we're doing today is I don't understand it <laughs> um you want to share maybe a random fact about you? Yes, uh, random fact. So I used to be a professional football player back in the day in Israel. So actually what brought me back to Israel, I was born in Israel. I grew up in the States. 2007, after graduated university, I came back to Israel to play professional soccer, football, whatever you call it. Um, and I played almost my entire life, um, but it was not meant to be. And uh, decided that I wasn't going to be Ronaldo or Messi. And so, well, at that time, it wasn't Ronaldo or Messi. It was more like Ronaldinho or Cristiano or the old fat, we call it fat Ronaldo. The guy named Big Ronaldo with a triangle haircut. Uh, anyway, so yeah, fun fact about me. That's Another one I would add, by the way, because I know them uh, pretty well. Adam has three kids, two, two beautiful daughters and a son. Um, and you're pretty young to have three kids, by the way, but you do. That's true. I'm 37. So there's, there's hope. So I, I think to, to your point more, you know, I, I hear a lot of people talk about like the right time to do a startup or the right time. You wrote a great, a great article about starting up a, a business in the pandemic. And I think the reality is, is that there is no right time. You know, life is always going to be there and you're always going to have stuff. And so if you're thinking about, and the, the network, we came back, coming back to that just to kind of full circle this one up. You know, you couldn't have started your business, regardless of the pandemic or otherwise, without having and knowing the people that you know. Yeah. And I think that creates 
even a stronger incentive to to build up what you you know to build that. You know, there there is a question that we skipped that is basically what piece of advice you would give someone entering this industry, and I think we can both agree it's just don't be a dick. <laughs> yes, don't isolate. I mean, just take the time. You know, somebody has a new product, take the time, learn what they have to do, and I think. I think one of the things that I think you and I have benefited from more than anything else is that we grew up in an Israeli environment when it came to business. And if Israelis can do, if they can only do one thing right in the world, which it may only be this one thing, is that they are very good at connecting people, right? I have a business idea. It's like, let me talk to Tzachi, my stepbrother's mother's <laughs> second cousin. That's complete. Working in yeah. this business, man. I, he, he is yeah, going to yeah. help you. And you're like, yeah, yeah. you just met me. He's like, it doesn't matter. You tell him Mordechai is sending you. He's going to help. He's going to sort you out. And in two minutes, you have an email. And Tzachi's already responded to the email being like, oh, you're Moti's cousin. Great. Let's set a coffee up in, in, in tomorrow. And you're like, what the hell is going on? And all of a sudden, he's introducing me to his friend. I mean, it's just like that's how they do business because it's, it, I think it's an us versus them mentality, right? Like we got to stick together, but also people just like to talk about that stuff. I can tell you in Germany and definitely in Spain, it is not like that. <laughs> people, people want to be like, you know, close to the chest. Um, where can people find you if they want to follow you? They can find me um, on LinkedIn. I'm kind of a LinkedIn Celebutant or whatever you call it, um, you know, um, or on Twitter at social underscore Adam. But but LinkedIn is usually is the place that I. No, I meant more like address and times of day when you're home, so people can actually follow you. <laughs> uh, I'm at home all the time. I live in Barcelona. If you come down, you can you can maybe get me out of my house for a couple hours and get a paella on the beach. Cool. So thank you, Adam, again. Uh, sorry for have deleted the previous one. I will not this time. And yeah, it's been a pleasure, like always. Thanks, Mike.